And we'll read together verses 27 to 30. Jesus speaking says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to, into hell. May God add his blessing with the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now, uh, Lord, this, it's going to get really uncomfortable really fast. And we recognize that. Uh, and we recognize in a whole lot of ways uh, the evangelical church has, uh, we have reflected the kind of mores of Victorianism and there's stuff that we should have been talking about for a long time that we've just not talked about. And Lord, this feels like one of those Sundays. And so Father, uh, give grace both to uh, the preacher and to the church as a whole. Father, help us to order rightly our lives, uh, not around the words that the preacher has to say, but around uh, your word. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, when we began our current series in the Sermon on the Mount, we noted that this is the Bible's manifesto on human flourishing. What does it mean to be fully human? And what does it mean in our humanity to be an, in an environment in which we can flourish, to be, in essence, the best uh, me, the best you that we can be? Now, that's different from you can have your best life now. Rather, it's an understanding that God, the creator, has made things a particular way. And it's only by following the commands and the norms of the creator that we can experience what it means to be fully human. Now, oftentimes, when the Sermon on the Mount is discussed, we hear it characterized as a Christian Manifesto, And let's be clear, it certainly is that. The person and work of Jesus Christ is front and center throughout this entire sermon. We see his divine authority and his kingship from beginning to end. But we need to remember that all that Jesus says in this sermon is not just true for Christians. It's not just true for people who live in societies based upon Judeo-Christian morals and ethics. But rather, since God is the creator of all that is, Jesus' words are not just for every Christian, they are for every human. As sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, these words are for us, whether we care to acknowledge them or not. This is particularly good news this morning. Last week, we learned that we are, all, we are all murderers. This week, we're going to learn an equally troubling truth. Namely, that we are all sexually broken. We've all failed. 
sexually. Now, if you're not seeing the good news in that particular statement, let me remind you of Jesus' words at the beginning of this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we see and own our own brokenness, when we see and own our own failure, the gospel promises us comfort. But we need to remember there's more going on than just comfort. This is not just a case of, hey, you're broken, I'm broken, we're all broken, let's just accept our brokenness. We must never forget that Jesus is king. And our king calls us to a particular way of life. Living the Jesus way means that we submit our brokenness to him. It means that even our most intimate desires must be subjected to our king. What it means is summed up for us in our big idea this morning. The high cost of following Jesus involves our most intimate desires. The high cost of following Jesus involves our most intimate desires. Now, as we begin this morning, let me just, uh, it's confession time for the pastor, right? Because confession is good for the soul. Uh, there are texts that you want to just kind of gloss over. And typically speaking, it's the text next week is the one that I, that pastors historically want to gloss over, right? Because you just can't win. There's, there's no way in the midst of our culture that you can talk about divorce and, and win. Uh, but I got to be honest, I have never been so tempted in, a, in an, any given week to pass over a text that I have been this one. Because uh, what I said at the beginning is absolutely true. It's true for all of us. Like we've all completely messed this up. We're all broken in this area. If last week was, hi, my name's Kyle and I'm a murderer, then to stand up, especially with your mother, your wife, and your son in the congregation and go, hi, my name's Kyle. I'm an adulterer. Right? Like, you get what's going on. And I hope you understand why this is not a text. Uh, please understand, th this is one of those texts that I was like, okay, what else we got? And, and I told Amy uh, several times, there's about 19 different ways that this could just become a complete dumpster fire. Uh, and so, please, I hope prayerfully uh, that's not the case. But if it is, uh, here we go. Right? First... Wrap your hands around the force of the argument. In other words, why move from murder to lust? Why move from murder to lust? Now, we understand that in these statements that began in chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said. Jesus is giving us one of the Ten Commandments. And then he's restating it in a way that drives home the original force of the commandment. It isn't just about not literally killing someone we saw last week. But it's about anger and insult and, and slander. This week we understand too, it's not just about actually committing adultery. But Jesus puts it this way, it's about the lustful intent. 
Well, the question then is, we move through these, as we move through uh, these commands that Jesus gives is, why does he start with the sixth commandment and then go to the seventh? Why doesn't he start with the first commandment? What's, what's, I mean, is there something wrong with the first five commandments? Do we just get those and so we don't need them cleaned up? And so we need to understand what Jesus is doing when he starts with the sixth commandment and then moves to the seventh, and we're going to see combines it with the tenth commandment. Now, we need to understand it too, because far too often we think of the Christian life in purely individualistic terms. It's about my relationship with Jesus. But we cannot forget That as Jesus is seated on the mountain and his disciples have come to him and he said that they are the salt of the earth, that they are the light of the world, that Jesus is creating a new community of faith. There's a new community of faith that's being formed. He's talking about now the new covenant people of God. And yes, they are individuals, but they also exist as a community. They exist as, if you would, a society or a culture. So Jesus is letting us know the kinds of things that are to characterize and be true of this new community, this new culture that he is creating. In 1995, uh, Pope John Paul II published an encyclical that was entitled uh, Evangelium Vitae, or uh, in in English, uh, The Gospel of Life. And in that particular encyclical, he argues that every society, every regime, every government is either promoting a culture of life or it's promoting a culture of death. And he'll argue there's no middle ground here. You're either for life and you are promoting life or you are for death and you are promoting death. And John Paul was very plain, he was very clear He says that when things like abortion or euthanasia are presented as basic human rights, you can be very certain that you find yourself in the midst of a culture of death. Such a culture is rebelling, he makes it clear, not merely against the church's teaching, but such a culture is rebelling against God himself, and that will not go well. So if you find yourself in the midst of a culture or regime or government that fails to protect life and sex and marriage, then you find yourself in the midst of a situation that's rebelling against God himself. Friends, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about human flourishing. So when we look around and we see the way that lustful intent is not just sort of winked at or not just sort of, well, we're not going to talk about it. But when you see the way that lustful intent is now monetized and now becomes so mainstream that a quote-unquote gentleman's magazine said, hey, we're not going to publish what we used to publish because it's really nobody wants to see that anymore. you you, you got to go big fly if you're going to do it. Well, if you find yourself living in the midst of that kind of culture, 
<laughs> Please understand that you're finding yourself in a situation that is rebelling against God himself. See, what Jesus has to say about adultery and lust, what Jesus has to say about murder and marriage, friends, that isn't just true for Christians. No, it's true for human beings. And if we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that says life is not worth protecting, lustful intent can be monetized and leveraged, and marriage is something we define for ourselves, well, then you find yourselves in the midst of a situation that is rebelling against God himself. Second, Jesus is combining two commandments to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus is combining two commandments to get to the heart of the matter. And verses 27 and 28, Jesus cites for us the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is doing something that he normally does whenever he speaks. He's taking dead aim at the religious rulers and authorities of the day. Because just like they did with the commandments surrounding murder, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, built a wall, as it were, around uh, what was going on with this particular commandment. And typically speaking, in the ancient world, because uh, ancient scholars and philosophers and uh, religious leaders, uh, not just Jewish, but also Gentile and, and Greek and Roman, had a lot to say about this particular question. And the generally held consensus was that if a man is looking at a woman and suddenly he views her lustfully, the issue was not with the man. The issue was with the woman. She's being a temptress. She's dressing in a way that's not appropriate. Now, please keep in mind, uh, most uh, women in the ancient world uh, didn't, necessarily dress. I mean, it was fairly modest. One of the things that uh, we, I think, need to be careful that we don't get the wrong side of the stick of, as we think about this question of lustful intent, as we think about the question in terms of how we look at others of the opposite sex, we need to remember that Jesus places the onus on the one who's looking, not on the one who's receiving the attention. Jesus places the onus on the one who's looking, not on the one who's receiving the attention. I have a, a new friend we met a couple weeks ago at a pastor's conference uh, we were both speaking, um, my friend Al, uh, pastors in, in South Florida, in Miami. Uh, he's a second-generation Cuban. Uh, his wife was a first-generation Italian from Detroit. Uh, they, have, they have kids, and Al's showing me pictures of his family, and they're all, like, really, really ridiculously good-looking people. And they live in South Florida. And they were a part of a network of churches that really place an emphasis on modesty. 
So, for example, ladies, if you're here this morning and you're showing some arm. Sorry, Meredith. I can see your arm. Oh, wait. I'm, I'm seeing your ankle. Clearly, you're trying to seduce me, right? And that's the problem. That's what came out of it. The problem that came out of it was, it's like, oh, no, no, ladies, that's on you. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not. The issue is not with what the woman is wearing. The issue is on what's going on within the heart of the individual. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not a question of attire. This is a question of the intentions of the heart. Now, to be clear, we can go the other way and say, ladies, it doesn't matter what you wear. Well, okay, we know that's not true either. So we need to be wise in this, but let's understand that Jesus takes uh, the and places the onus not on the one who's receiving the attention, but he places the onus on the one who's looking. And in so doing, he reminds us that what's going on in the seventh commandment is also really what's going on in the tenth. It's about coveting. Did you hear that in our Old Testament reading for this morning? The issue wasn't just, hey, I, I've, I've, I've resolved in my mind, I'm not going to look lustfully at a virgin. Okay, that's great. But then Job goes on and ties it to what's going on in his neighbor's house. He says, if my heart has been enticed towards a woman, in verse 9 of Job 31, and I have lain and waited at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. Friends, this is about community and it's about coveting. What's the issue? The issue is I'm looking at something that's not mine and I desire it. And I desire it in a way that I shouldn't. And so Jesus says, listen, it's not just about the actual physical act of committing adultery. But if you're looking at someone with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. When I was in college, uh, Taylor realized that uh, because of uh, my, my graduating class, 1988, was the first year that nationally, if you're talking about high school graduates, my class was the first year in which the majority of our parents had gotten divorced at some point when we were growing up. Like it stayed at like 48%, 49.2, 49.4, 49.7. And then in my class, it was like 51 something percent. And so Taylor got wise to it, and they're like, hey, we need to do a whole week on sort of marriage and relationships and singleness because we, we understand that we got a lot of students who've come out of broken homes, even though this is a Christian college, and so we want to address this. And a friend of mine characterized uh, what they call it, marriage and singleness week is basically it's a pep talk for the guys. Ladies, let me ask you a question. You know what the fastest growing category of pornographic consumption is in the United States? It's porn that's geared towards women. I know that when we look at this, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, uh, with, at a, with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his 
hard. And with the temptation is to look at this and go, oh, this is just for the guys. Again, this is a guy pep talk. Ladies, you're okay. Uh, just dress modestly and you're fine. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. So what do we do? What do we do? If you know the statistics on pornography, if you know the statistics on how it is that uh, uh, looking at someone with lustful intent has been monetized and has become a, such a mainstream part of our culture, what do you do? Do we just stand and rail against the evils of pornography and the evil of the culture? No, Jesus calls us to act. And let's look at what he tells us, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and let your whole body go into hell. This brings us to our third point. We want to roll with John Owen. We want to roll with John Owen. What's that mean? Well, let's understand, first of all, that when Jesus speaks these words, he's not speaking literally. He doesn't mean that we should walk around with both eyes gouged out and both hands removed. And for most of us, he doesn't mean that you should cut your tongue out because most of the time it's stupid stuff I say that gets me in trouble. It's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about, though, is something that John Owen summarized much later, in which Owen says, and I'm paraphrasing now, either you kill sin or sin will kill you. So Jesus doesn't mean you're literally supposed to pluck your right eye out, but what he does mean is this. Listen, if your right eye is causing you to sin, then whatever it is, remove it. Remove yourself. Why? Because it's better that you lose one of your, it's better that you give something up than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I, I know of a young man who was uh, dealing or seeking to deal with uh, a pornography problem. And you know what he did? And so, by the way, those of you who are under 20, like five, you're going to, you're going to, you're just going to be aghast at what I'm about to say. So, uh, he, he's, he's struggling with porn. The porn is on his phone. So you know what he did? He got rid of his phone. I know. You're like, no, don't. <laughs> no. Because that's your life. Brilliant illustration of what Jesus was talking about. If that's what's causing you to stumble, do away with it. I have a friend who... Uh, was a smoker, and he decided he was going to quit smoking. And uh, he, uh, he traveled a lot for his job. He was a salesman, and the place that would get him in trouble is he'd go into, he'd, he'd buy gas, and he'd go in the gas station and pay for his gas. And if you've been to a gas station, what's on the wall behind you? Yep, there they are. So my friend, and this was before, you know, everybody necessarily had that you could just pay it. I mean, it wasn't necessarily as convenient to pay at the pump as it is now, but he just decided he learned in his territory where the places were that he could pay at the pump. Because if he paid at the pump, then he didn't have to go inside. And if he didn't have to go inside, then he wouldn't see a wall filled with things that he really wanted to have but was trying to quit doing. 
We have to kill sin, or sin will kill us. But if we play around, and if we dabble, and if we don't deal decisively with whatever it is that's causing us to sin, if we don't tear it out and throw it away, then Jesus says we risk being thrown into hell. We risk the whole body going into hell. In a moment, we're going to come to the table. And as we come to the table, we are reminded of what it took for human flourishing to actually really be a thing. We're reminded of the price that was paid. We're reminded of the pain and the misery and the destruction and the heartache that comes via adultery and lustful intent and people trifling with their sin instead of mortifying it. You see, to deal with all that finally and conclusively, the one perfect, innocent human being who ever walked the face of the planet had to die. His body had to be broken and his blood needed to be shed, had to be shed, to atone not for his lust, not for his adultery, and not for his trifling with sin, but for ours. And so this morning we come. We come thankful that we can kill sin, but we can do so only because Christ was killed on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, we, we come to you this morning and we recognize uh, what a complete train wreck we find ourselves in the midst of. That ours is a culture of death. That ours is a culture that invites, promotes, monetizes adultery. It invites, promotes, and monetizes lustful intent. And Father, as folks who live in the midst of that kind of world, it's, it's easy for us as Christians to get caught up in all of that mess. And so, Lord, we would pray this morning for our nation. It's been said multiple times, but I think we would agree that if, if you allow the United States to not be judged because of our sin and rebellion, uh, you'll owe a great apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Father, that's probably true. Lord, at the same time, we would pray for one another. We would pray that our sisters in Christ would understand that uh, we, we don't intend to objectify them or see them as some sort of uh, evil, seductress and temptress. 
but as Paul tells Timothy, we view them as, as older sisters or younger sisters in the faith, mothers of the faith, younger sisters in the faith. Father, in the, in the same way, would we understand that the onus for this is on the person doing the looking, not, not on the recipient. Father, we pray that we would be faithful as your people to bring uh, our sexual brokenness to you. And that we wouldn't just bring it and say, oh, isn't it great? God's grace covers my sin. But that as we repent, we would seek to fight our sin. We would seek to mortify our sin, knowing that if we do not, it will kill us. And it will result uh, in a spiritual demise that is so much greater than any physical pain or demise that we could feel. And so, Father, help us as your people to, to live uh, the reality of this. Help us in the midst of a culture that just doesn't get it. Uh, to, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, not merely with what we protest and what we're angry about. But, Father, help us to proclaim the truth of the gospel with how we live our lives and how we handle, uh, how we handle the Internet and how we handle social media and how we handle those things in our lives that so easily uh, bring this into our homes and into our hearts. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.